Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Thank you, Kevin, and music team, and all who are behind the scenes for leading us this morning to the throne of our God. Let's pray as we begin. God, this morning we pray that none of us would stand above your word, but rather come underneath it, obey it, trust it, delight in it. Lord, we pray these things would characterize our encounter with your word as we open up to Hebrews 8. And Lord, may the scattered seed of your word this morning result in the bearing of fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and Lord, we pray, even a 100-fold. And so lead us in the way everlasting, we pray, and may Christ be honored. Amen. This year, if you're new among us, um, it's helpful for you to know that at the first Sunday of every month, what we're doing is spending our time looking at the Lord's Supper. So right now we're in a series in the Psalms, and about three Sundays a month we take a psalm and we preach it, but on the first Sunday of the month when we observe the Lord's Supper together, what we really want to do is highlight what is happening before us. And Pastor Sean started this year in, uh, in January, he started with a sermon giving us sort of five directions that we ought to look in as we come around the Lord's table, and I'm going to focus in on the second direction um, that he enumerated in his sermon earlier in January. I want us to look back this morning at the death of Christ, and as we do that this morning, I want to ask a question. How do you approach the Lord's table? How do you approach it on a Sunday morning when we gather together and you see the plates here or maybe you've read the bulletin and you, and you realize, oh yes, we're, we're headed to church and the Lord's Supper is going to be observed. How do you approach celebrating the Lord's Supper? Perhaps there's some among us that are ashamed as they think of their frailties and their failures throughout the week. Am I worthy to take of the Lord's Supper? Perhaps the Lord's Supper makes some uneasy. Is this table really for me? Maybe some are scared and daunted. What does this mean? What is truly happening as we approach the Lord's table? Then for others, we might be neutral, casual. Some might even be indifferent as we come to the table. And then for others, it might just be routine. Yeah, we do this once a month. Here we are. We've arrived again and... We'll go through the motions. 
There's a story, a famous story of Martin Luther before he was a Protestant and before he sort of kick-started his portion of the Reformation. He was a monk. He was a Catholic monk, an Augustinian monk. And he is standing behind the altar looking to perform his first ever Mass. And the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's table, I would say, is unscriptural. It is something called transubstantiation, where they believe that the elements, the bread and the cup, actually become the Lord's body and blood as the priest consecrates them. And so Martin Luther is here at his first Mass. His father is in the audience with 20 horsemen who have ridden in with him. His father's not pleased that Luther's a monk. He wanted him to be a lawyer. And Luther's standing behind this altar, and he is about to perform the consecration. And on the slab beneath Luther's feet, there is a picture of Christ, a picture of Christ that was very common in Luther's day. And it was a picture of Christ from the book of Revelation. Here is Christ standing among the lampstands, and out of Christ's mouth in this picture comes a sword. Christ is judge, the picture says. And so as Luther is standing behind the altar, he is about to perform the consecration of the elements, and he is standing on this slab where Christ is judge is being proclaimed from the art. And as his dad is sitting in the audience, he says in a later writing, I just wanted to flee. I wanted to get out of there. I was struck by the majesty of God and my own sinfulness. And as he's standing there to observe a sort of false rendition of the Lord's Supper, he is full of terror. Friends, this morning, as we gather around the Lord's uh, table, I hope that none of us are gathering with terror And as we turn to Hebrews chapter 8, my prayer for us this morning is that we would learn to approach the Lord's table both joyfully and gratefully with a right understanding of what we are doing and a right understanding of who invites us. Yes, we approach reverently. Yes, we approach soberly. But we also approach joyfully and gratefully as we look to Jesus in Luke 22:20, 20, as the Lord is instituting the supper for the first time among his disciples, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. I want to, over the course of the next two months, break that statement down for us. This morning, we are going to look at the first half of that statement, the new covenant, And so this morning, we are going to zoom in on what the writer of the Hebrews says about the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. Then in a month's time, we will turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and we will unpack the second half of that statement and look at what the writer of the Hebrews says about the significance of Christ's blood. We do this in remembrance of both of those things, the fact that we are under a new covenant through Christ's blood. I want to break that down over the next couple of weeks so that our joy may abound as we approach this table. 
This morning's sermon can be summarized in in a sentence, and if I were to do so, and I have, here's what it would be. We can approach the Lord's table joyfully and gratefully because we have a better mediator of a better covenant. That's what Hebrews chapter 8 is all about, and I hope that you've had time to turn there. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The inspired word of God says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. This text, if you look back down at your Bible, divides very nicely in half. Verses 1 to 6 talk about the fact that we have a mediator of a better covenant And then verse 7, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 13, talks about the fact that we belong to a better covenant. We have a better mediator, and we belong to a better covenant. Let's look at each of those in turn. And as we approach the Lord's table and look at the Lord's table through this first lens, it is imperative that we hear this truth. We have a better high priest. The last three and a bit chapters, um, the author, in the last three and a bit chapters, the author of Hebrews has written about Christ's qualifications as our high priest. So right at the end of chapter four, all the way till the end of chapter seven, details, gives us detail upon detail about the qualifications of our high priest. Then in chapter eight, where we are this morning, the author gives us the main point. Hebrews is a sermon. Isn't it always nice when the pastor gives us the main point? 
In Hebrews 7.26, if you look with me there, the author says that it is fitting that we should have, quote, such a high priest who is holy, who is innocent, who is unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And then we flip over to chapter 8, and he declares, we have that high priest. We have such a high priest. And then, for the first six verses, he shows us how Jesus is a better mediator than any other mediator that has come before. He is better than any high priest that the Levites ever knew, any priest that the Levites ever knew. Jesus is better And he shows us that in four ways. You'll see them in the text. They're very clear. Notice first that Jesus is a high priest with a better seat. Let me just forewarn you. You will never get so excited about a chair again. Jesus is a high priest with a better seat. Well, what does this better seat entail? Look with me at verse 1. Now, the point and what I'm saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. What is the big deal about this seat? I really think there are three things that we have to notice. Anytime we see the word seat, especially in the book of Hebrews, number one, the seat denotes prominence. Christ's position is one of surpassing prominence. Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We all know that when you sit at the right hand of someone who is royal, it denotes honor. It denotes prestige. It denotes prominence. No other priest ever before in the history of redemption ever sat at the right hand of the majesty on high, but Jesus has after offering his life. There he is seated in prominence, surpassing prominence. Friends, we have a seated Savior. Number two, here's what the seat denotes. It it, it denotes completion. Christ's work on our behalf is finished forever. You'll understand this very clearly if you've read any of the Old Testament. The priests were always working. They were always working because there were always sins to atone for. The priests would grab the lamb that was brought in. They would slaughter it from a standing position. The blood would be spilled. They would go through the ritual, and they would be on to the very next sacrifice. Okay, now we've got a turtle dove and a pigeon. It's coming in. We'll slice it open. We will atone for sins. Offering after offering after offering was made under the old system. But Jesus Christ walks onto the scene and he gives his own body as the perfect spotless lamb and he dies on behalf of sinners and he rises again victoriously and then he ascends to his father on high and what is the first thing he does? He takes a seat. My work is finished. I don't need to stand like all these other priests needed to stand day in, day out, as long as they served until they died. But I can sit down because I have offered my body. My blood has been spilt. It is a perfect sacrifice. And it does thoroughly atone for sins. Three earth-shattering words are spoken in John 19.30. 
three words that are perhaps the most important that Jesus ever spoke, and they are words that ought to penetrate our hearts and cause us to worship, and that's what this seat denotes. It points us back to these three words. Jesus stretches out his arms upon the cross. He is nailed into that tool of torture, and then he opens up his mouth before he dies, and what does he say? It is finished. I'm going to take a seat. Once and done. One and done. Complete. Never again to be repeated. I am going to go to my Father and I am going to take a seat. Friends, we have a seated Savior. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it vividly, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, praise the Lord, we have a seated Savior. That denotes prominence. That denotes completion. It also denotes intercession. Christ lives. The fact that he is seated, it means that he lives to make intercession for us. Christ's seat signals that his work continues in heaven on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says, Christ always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. This is a comfort for the Christian, the fact that Christ is seated. It is a comfort because Christ's work continues for us. He resides in heaven with the scars on his hands, with the wound in his side, perhaps with even scars on his forehead from the crown of thorns. He resides there as a living visual example that the work is done. And that very presence intercedes for us again and again and again before the Father. So when we sin... We know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When Satan tempts us and accuses us, we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When the world and the flesh entice us, we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He lives to make intercession for us. And so, friends, we are invited by this seated Savior to receive mercy and find grace in time of need to draw near to him. A chair has never been so exciting. That's the first thing that we see in this text about how Christ's priesthood is better. He is a seated Savior. He has a better seat. Secondly, you'll see in verses 2 and 5 that Christ is a high priest in a better place. He's not only a seated Savior, but he is a high priest in a better place. Notice the location of our high priest. You'll see it verse 1 and 2. He's in heaven, verse 1. Verse 2, he's in the holy places. He is taking up residence in the true tent. And this is a tent that the Lord has set up. There are, I just found out this week, 12 copies of the Mona Lisa all over planet Earth, at least 12 copies. These copies were made by uh, Leonardo da Vinci's students. 
And I looked up one of them, and you know, the background has mountains in it, but the actual Mona Lisa does not have that background on it. So, so they don't look exactly like Leonardo da Vinci's, but they're beautiful. Um, his students do a wonderful job of making a copy of what Leonardo so famously put into canvas. And, you know, you could go to any of the museums that have these copies, you could stare at that piece of art, and especially if you were a connoisseur of art, you would look at it and you would go, that really is wonderful. I'm glad I'm here. You'd probably take a picture of it. you probably want to show folks that you had been there. It is a beautiful piece of art. But here's the catch. It is not the original. The original is in the Louvre in Paris. There is nothing like the original in life. No copy is like the original. No copy can take the original's place. And the Levitical priests, as they performed their duties, they did so in a beautiful tabernacle, in a beautiful tent that the Lord had given them instructions, that's cited in verse 5, the Lord had given them instructions on how to build, on what form it should take. It was a glorious tabernacle. To the eye, we would say, this is, this, is, this is splendid in every way, but here is the catch. The text tells us it is a copy and a shadow of the true thing itself, of the true tent. Jesus Christ, after giving his life, sat down at the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for us where? In a better place, in the most holy place, in a holier holy of holies. At the very right hand of the Father, Jesus is in a better place. Our high priest ministers in a better place. That's why he's better. His ministry is better than the Levitical priests because he is a seated high priest and he ministers in a better place. Thirdly, you'll see in the text, verses 3 and 4, that Christ is a high priest with a better offering. Look at verse 3. It tells us, all about the point of the priesthood. Priests by nature, you'll see it embedded in verse 3, priests by nature of their role offer gifts and sacrifices. Every priest must have something to offer. You do not walk into the tabernacle. You do not minister in the temple without something in your hands. You are one who offers gifts and sacrifices to God that you might approach him, that you might have access to him. And the book of Leviticus makes this abundantly clear. The, the early chapters, if you were just to skim through the early chapters of Leviticus, you would see this writ on every page. Leviticus chapter 1, instructions about burnt offerings. Leviticus chapter 2, instructions about grain offerings. Leviticus chapter 3, instructions about peace offerings. Leviticus chapter 4, instructions about sin offerings. Leviticus chapter 5, instructions about guilt offerings. Leviticus is giving us details about all these offerings that must be made. Thus, a priest was one who grabbed a hold of these offerings and presented them to God that the distance that sin had made might be narrowed a little bit more. You always have to come into the tabernacle or into the temple with something in your hands. But Christ walked into the heavenly tabernacle and he has nothing in his hands save the scars that resulted as a matter of him being nailed to the cross. That is what he walks into the true tent with. He has no bull. He has no goat. 
He has no sheep. He has no turtle dove, and he has no pigeon. He offers himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. The only thing in his hands was the scars that had nailed him to the cross. Our high priest walked into the most holy place in heaven, bringing his own blood and body. Praise God for the better offering of a better mediator. So Christ's high priestly ministry is better because he is seated, because he is in a better place, because he has a better offering. And then you'll see number four in verse six, Christ is a high priest with a better ministry. The sixth verse tells us that Christ's ministry is superior than that of the Levitical priests. Why? Because Christ is a mediator of a better covenant. Well, why is it a better covenant? Well, the text answers that. Because it was enacted on better promises. Now, let's be very clear here. God, that does not mean that the promises that God made under the Old Testament, or Old Covenant, I should say, were bad promises. God did not make bad promises under the Old Covenant. It does not mean that God somehow, under the Old Covenant, made an error. And the New Covenant is just a correction to this error that the Lord has made. Absolutely not. As, as, as one writer put it, the, the Old Covenant ac- accomplished everything that God intended it to. And I love how what he lists out as the things that were intended by the Old Covenant. He says it helped people, this Old Covenant, to understand the holiness of God. There is distance between us and the holy. It helped people, it helped the Israelites to understand their own sin. I am depraved in every way, and the one who is holy will not see me in his presence unless atonement is made. And the third thing that the Old Covenant did is it established a pattern of sacrifice and priesthood and salvation in order to point to our need for a true and better sacrifice, a true and better priest, a true and better salvation. Promises of the old covenant pointed to something better. They were promises that pointed beyond themselves. They pointed to a need for a true and better high priest with a true and better covenant. The old covenant was never intended by God as the final word. It points to the need of fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the final sacrifice who offered his body for us once and for all. Jesus' ministry is better. That's our first point. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, is better because he has a better seat, in a better place, with a better offering, and he has a better ministry. But then we turn to the second half of the text, and we pick it up in verse 7, and it shows us as we work our way through this number of verses that we actually don't only belong to a better high priest, but we belong to a better covenant as well. And as we approach the Lord's table, it is imperative that we hear this truth. We belong to a better, a new covenant. You'll look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 uses strong language about the Old Covenant. You'll see it there. It tells us that this first covenant was faulty. If the first covenant had been faultless, it's implying that the Old Covenant is faulty. But let me be clear here that the fault is not with God. The fault, as the very next verse points out, you'll look at verse 8, 
The fault is with God's covenant people. God's covenant people were unfaithful and disobedient all the time. Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then he gets into Jeremiah 31. Salvation history, friends, in large part, is a detailed analysis of the unfaithfulness and disobedience of God's people. In large part, that's what it is. As we look at the Old Testament, you know, I had a lady some years ago come up to me and say to me, Caleb, I'm working my way through the Old Testament. Boy, are those Israelites ever naughty. Like just again and again and again. And I love it when people say that to me because it gives me an opportunity to be able to say, yeah, it's just a cross-section of your heart and my heart. That's what it is. It really is a cross-section of what we are like and especially what things were like under the old covenant before the heart was renewed, but we'll get there in a second. And so the author, after finding fault in the covenant and pointing to the fault being that of the covenant people, he turns to Jeremiah chapter 31. Now this, uh, just in case you're ever doing some Bible quizzing of any sort, this is the longest New Test- uh, Old Testament quotation in the New. This is the longest section of text that the New Testament ever quotes from the Old. Um, quite a number of verses here. And this is found in, in, in Jeremiah's prophecy, which has a lot to do with judgment. If you read the 50-odd chapters of Jeremiah, it has a lot to do with judgment. But right in the middle of Jeremiah's writings, we get something called the Book of Comfort, Jeremiah 30 to Jeremiah 33, where Jeremiah prophesies about the hope that Israel would be able to experience in the future through a better mediator. And that's where we get the promise of the new covenant. There is this hope. And so every one of us who has Jesus Christ as our high priest, having come to him in faith and repentance, belongs to this new hope, this better covenant, this new covenant. And our gathering around the Lord's table is a reminder of this covenant that we belong to. So here's, here's what we got to ask. If I belong to this new covenant, what are the better promises of this better covenant? What are they? Where do we find them in the text? Well, I want to give you four. As we look at from verse 10 to 12, there are four better promises of this better covenant. The first promise is one of inner transformation. We have God's law written in our heart and on our minds. The heart of the matter with Israel was a matter of the heart. See, Israel was constantly breaking the covenant because they had a heart issue. That's the bottom line in the Old Testament. You remember just how many times the Lord says in the Old Testament, Israel, you have an external circumcision, a physical one, but what you need is a circumcision of the heart. Your heart has not been transformed. You, you obey me in these external rituals, these external ceremonies. Yeah, you're a national Israelite. You belong to the covenant people by de facto because of your passport. But your heart is not transformed. We get this in Jeremiah 4. We get this in Deuteronomy 30. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a heart issue at stake. And I love how Tim Keller defines the circumcision of the heart. He says that a person with a circumcised heart, uh, we know that someone has a circumcised heart when what we ought to do 
and what we want to do are the same thing. That's a circumcised heart. When what we ought to do, there's the law. There's what God requires. What we ought to do and what we want to do are the same thing. There is this inner transformation such that I want to do and delight in and obey all that God has said. But the old covenant did not transform the insides, the heart and the mind. It actually highlighted and exposed just how bad our insides are. But friends, if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given a transformed heart, a new heart. The law of God under the new covenant is written on our hearts such that we know and love God as we ought to so that we can actually love God and his ways, so that we can delight in doing what he commands, so that we are sorrowful when we look at our iniquities and we are grieved when we sin against the Lord. The, the, the first promise of the new covenant is inner transformation. The spirit of God works on us to renovate our insides such that we can obey the true and living God. That's the first blessing of the new covenant. You see that in verse 10a. The second blessing is a personal relationship with God. We belong to God, second half of verse 10. Friends, this is actually a wonder. God, the living God, who dwells alone in unapproachable light, is our personal pronoun, God. That is what this verse is saying. We have access to God because of our great high priest, we can be in relationship to him because of our great high priest. Can you think of a greater privilege in life? Can you actually think of a greater privilege in life? We, we get so excited when we get to talk to or meet important people. We, you know, get so excited when we get to work with important people or when we get to advise important people or be advised by important people. We love that old, uh, you know, business card exchange. This guy's important. I think I'm a pretty big deal too. We're going to exchange business cards. There we go. We get ex super excited about prestige and prominence and importance. And our passage this morning informs us that our greatest privilege in life has to do with our personal relationship with the Lord. It is not merely an association. It is not merely a conversation. It is not merely a business card. It is a relationship with the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, the holy one, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. You see the second half of verse 10. God is ours and we are his. You see, the old covenant, we've, we've, we've emphasized this already. The old covenant emphasized distance. You walk into the tabernacle and what keeps you from going into the holy of holies? Big, thick curtain. Do not enter. You can't go there. You probably can't even enter very far into the tabernacle because you're not a priest and you're not a Levite. Mount Sinai, as God you know, dwells on top of the mountain, what is the warning all throughout the preface to the Sinai narrative? Make sure the people don't touch the mountain. There is distance between me and them. But here the distance is removed through our better mediator of a better covenant. Do you see it? God is ours and we are his. The distance has been removed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are cleansed such that touch Sinai all you want, not irreverently, but you have access to the Holy One. The distance is removed. We are adopted into the very family of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the second blessing of the new covenant. Inner transformation 
personal relationship. And look at the third, true knowledge. Verse 11, under the old covenant, you joined the community through birth. So you belonged to the covenant people of God by virtue of being born to Israelite parents, essentially. That's how you fell under that old covenant. You could proselytize, you know, you could be a proselyte and come into the old covenant community. That was rare. By and large, how did you come into the old, the old covenant community? Birth. And so you could have people under the old covenant who were just there because they were born into it and really didn't have a circumcised heart. They didn't really know the Lord. They were part of the Lord's people by title, but they didn't really know the Lord. In the new covenant, here's the guarantee of verse 11. Everyone who belongs to the new covenant has been born again. You don't enter the new covenant by birth. You enter the new covenant by new birth. By being born again, all those people who are part of the family of God have received the gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a blessing of the new covenant. And so often Israel would lean on their birth and say, I'm fine, but have no regard for Yahweh. Not so with the new covenant. It is not founded along national lines. It is formed by virtue of one's new birth in the Lord. Nothing but Christ via the new birth can bring us into the new covenant. Not our nationality, not our parentage, not our morality or our ethics, not our politics, not our church membership. No, baptism does not save us. Neither does tithing, church attendance, or any sort of ceremony. We are born again by the Spirit of God, and that is how we become part of the new covenant community. And so the warning is there for Israelites, but it's also there for us if we are leaning on anything other than the new birth, anything other than God for our salvation, stop and look to Christ. Look to Christ who alone is our salvation. All who are truly part of the new covenant community are born again. That's the third blessing of the new covenant. Inner transformation, personal relationship, true knowledge, and you'll see the fourth and final one, verse 12. The fourth and final blessing is forgiveness forever. Forgiveness forever. We have forgiveness in God. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Under the new covenant, we have free and full and final forgiveness. There are no more sacrifices to offer. Christ has paid for every sin of the believer, past, present, and future. You know, when God says in uh, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, I, I, I sometimes think that we sort of gloss over that as if it's kind of a, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's kind of common knowledge. We've got songs about it. We read it now and again. When God says that he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Just, just a reminder, he is talking about an infinite distance. Our brother, our beloved pastor, Sean, and his family flew to Sydney, Australia on, two, on Wednesday. And if you were to take a direct flight from this church to Sydney, you would be flying over the um, Pacific Ocean and you'd be flying for 15,500 kilometers. 
It took them 37 hours once they left their house to get to Sydney, Australia. From door to door, 37 hours. It's a long distance. I hope they didn't forget anything. It is a very long distance. And friends, it is not an infinite distance. It is very easy to travel that distance. You buy a ticket, you pack your bag, you get on a plane. When God says, I have removed your sins from you, as far as the east is from the west, he is not playing around. He is being very definitive about the distance, and he is saying, I have removed them. I have forgotten about them. I ha- you, you're, you're cleansed. Finally, that's it. They, they aren't coming back. We left something behind. They're not coming back. God chooses to no longer, the verse says, remember our sins in a way that would bring condemnation. He will not count our sins against us because they are forgiven. Here's what belonging to the new covenant means. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take that promise to the bank. If you fall under the new covenant, if Jesus Christ has shed his blood for you and you have taken hold of him by faith, your sins are gone. As far as the east is from the west, he will not bring them up on judgment day in a way to condemn you. Can you breathe a sigh of relief? Jesus Christ has taken my sins upon himself on Calvary's cross. My sins were imputed to him. His righteousness has been imputed to me. Therefore, I will stand in the judgment And there will be no condemnation because my sins are dealt with. They are not remembered. They are cast away as far as the east is from the west. That's what we remember as we come to the Lord's table. That because Christ has died and risen, we who are in him are no longer under condemnation. No condemnation now I fear, the hymn writer says. And all of these promises, this this better mediator of a better covenant ought to inform the way that we look at the wrappers underneath those tins. Oh, they mean something so much more. I come under a new covenant mediator, a better one. I come with better promises of a newer covenant. I've been transformed. I have a personal relationship With the living God, I have true knowledge of him and my sins are forgiven. That is how we approach the Lord's table. And so when Christ takes that cup in Luke 22, 20, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Those are all the things that ought to circulate in our heads. And so we don't need to be like a Martin Luther who came to the table in a wrong way because it was a wrong observance, with terror and trembling, wanting to run away. We don't need to come saying, is this really for me? Am I worthy? Friend, by Christ's merit, you have been made worthy to approach this table. And we remember all that Christ has done, not not of works that I have done. I cannot boast, but it is all through Christ. That's the new covenant, friends. Let us take up these elements and remember him. Let me pray.
Father in heaven, we come before you with gratitude in our hearts. Oh Lord, what a relief that our sins have been forgiven, that our iniquities you will remember no more, that there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we look to the table now, that we would examine ourselves rightly as Christ examines us, as you examine us in Christ. And so help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.